He was an inventor and a builder. He built two of the biggest companies in the history of the world. He invented the musical synthesizer, at least the first one, important electronic switches. He got a patent on an underwater signaling device. But perhaps most importantly, on February 14, 1876, he filed the first patent for the telephone. Of course, I'm talking about Alicia Gray. Hey, it's Seth. And this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about simultaneous invention. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hi, Seth. My name is Grant Brown, and I'm the founder of Happy Eco News. We provide positive news about the environment five times a day and a top five newsletter for your inbox every Monday morning. We only have two goals. One is to help people find hope for the future, and two is to help promote the good people that are doing the good work. I hope your audience will check us out at happyeconews.com and learn how people of all types are making a difference and ultimately that there is still reason for hope. Thank you. Yep, it was Alicia Gray. He also had a beard. He also was a deeply religious man, very thoughtful. And yes, by many accounts, he actually invented the telephone. There were a lot of shenanigans in the patent office in the late 1800s. And this is certainly an example, regardless of which side you're on, of shenanigans. Alexander Graham Bell had a really good lawyer. There was a lot of information flowing back and forth. And in the lawsuit that followed, Bell ended up winning, though my reading of it is it was probably a tie. With that said, I got this snippet of a question about a throwaway line I had about Gutenberg. Hey, Seth. This is Jim from Shakorwa, New Hampshire. A question related to your leverage episode. You gave credit to Gutenberg for creating the printing press and then kind of downplayed the credit by saying, eh, it would have come along anyway. And I was just wondering, was that a throwaway comment? Are you saying we give too much credit to individuals for inventions that probably would have come along anyway, or is there something else going on there? I think it's pretty clear that if Gutenberg had never lived, we'd still have books. We probably would have had them in about the same way we have them now. It probably would have been developed at about the same time. About 15 years ago, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a piece in The New Yorker recapping some of the examples of simultaneous invention. For example, sunspots, 1611, discovered four times in the same year by Galileo, by Schneier, by Fabricius, and by Harriet. Or consider the idea that two people in Britain both were working independently on the theory of evolution, and one of them, Alfred Russell Wallace, didn't get nearly as much credit as Darwin, perhaps because Darwin had a better reputation, because Darwin had been working on it for decades, but was keeping it a secret until he heard that Wallace was about to report on the same topic. Oxygen, 1774. We have Joseph Priestley and then Carl Wilhelm Scheele just a year earlier. Color photography, invented at the same time by Croce, by Ducos de Huron. Logarithms, by Napier and Henry Briggs, and by Joost Berge, all at the same time. In fact, the authors 
that Gladwell quotes, Ogburn and Thomas, in 1922 found 148 major scientific discoveries that happened within very small windows of time. My theory is this. Great inventors are rare indeed. There are very few breakthrough inventions that wouldn't have happened if the person who invented them, in quotation marks, hadn't lived. I think we'll give Einstein a special category because of his miracle year in which he basically rewired science, but even then, it would have happened without him. I do think that there is a second category, a category that's worth talking about that isn't about discovering natural laws. It isn't about engineering and science that would have happened anyway. It's more cultural than that. I want to highlight for you one of the great record albums of my lifetime, The Harder They Come. Jimmy Cliff gets a lot of credit because he has most of the songs on that record, but there are two. One, The Rivers of Babylon by the Melodians and Desmond Decker's work. Here's a song of his that's not on the album, which I really like. So how is it that Desmond Decker and the Melodians are known to just about everybody who grew up in the Western world with a radio, but not really known for their body of work. How is it that Bob Marley dominates our conversations about reggae? How is it that we pay way more attention to reggae than, say, ska? I think we can put some of this at the feet of Chris Blackwell. Chris Blackwell had some early success finding people with Island Records who were making reggae, but he figured out how to double down and double down and double down again. There's no doubt in my mind we would have had black-influenced rock and roll without Barry Gordy. But Motown, Motown became a cultural force because Barry Gordy took the head start that came from finding a few hits and then multiplying it again and again and again. That what it means to make cultural change is a little different than what it means to assemble the pieces of the universe in a way that they haven't been assembled before. Because inventors, people who do science, work with little tiny scraps. There are all these scraps out there, constantly left behind by the scientists and the engineers that have come before. And if you put them together in such a way that you end up with a fax machine invented by Alexander Graham Bell, then you get a prize. And if you don't, no one notices. And so we've got people who show up giving us insights as to how the world works. So we have six people who say they invented the thermometer, and none of them talked to each other before they brought it to the world. Nine people invented the telescope. The typewriter was invented in multiple countries. And the steamboat, according to Ogburn and Thomas, was exclusively discovered by one, two, three, four, five different people. What happens if you're one of these sorts of inventors is you're putting scraps together. If it doesn't work, nobody knows. 
And if it does, well, then you're a genius inventor for the history books. I don't think the same thing can be said for people who are showing up year after year to bend the culture. So it's probably worth a second to go through the famous examples. Steve Jobs did not invent the Mac. He did not invent the iPod. He did not invent the iPad. He did not invent the iPhone. But he single-handedly changed the way we thought about technology. A long time ago, I did not actually invent permission marketing. I just named it. There was email before I was working so hard with my team on email marketing. But the invention part, well, that part's convenient to talk about, but it's not the point. Oprah Winfrey didn't invent the talk show. The idea itself, the scraps that are assembled, that seems heroic. But in fact, that's going to happen anyway. The part that's super hard, hard to explain, hard to do, hard to persist through, is what do you do when those scraps start to arrive? That Alexander Graham Bell needs to be known as the architect of the Bell system. The person who, yes, hired a really good patent lawyer to begin with, but figured out how to persistently and consistently come up with his distributed algorithmic manual-based system to build a nationwide and then worldwide system where everyone could talk to each other with the same phone. Inventing the phone, that was going to happen either way. I'll put some musicians in this category, people like Nobel Prize winner Bob Dylan, and definitely performers like Ella Fitzgerald. But in general, what I'm talking about are people who are behind the scenes, who figure out how to use the small head start that they get in credibility, in benefit of the doubt, and in money to do it again and do it again and do it again. Yes, they're still looking for scraps. Yes, they're still taking the work that others have done, but what they're doing is curating it. They're getting up to bat far more often in public than the typical inventor ever does because the inventor knows if it works or not before they show up in public, but not the curator. The curator is going on instinct, taking a risk financial, time-wise, reputation-wise, bringing it to the public, and if it works, they get even more credit, and then they get to do it again. And so I'm not saying that Barry Gordy can be compared to Alexander Graham Bell or Alicia Gray. What I'm saying is we don't have that many successful impresarios out there, culture benders who do it for a living persistently and consistently. So yes, Gutenberg fits into my hall of fame of inventors. But no, Gutenberg is not irreplaceable. But when I make a list of the cultural impresarios of my lifetime, the Bill Grahams of the world, there aren't that many people on the list because it's a different kind of skill. And it's one that not that many people lean into. Thanks for listening to my rant. We'll go out with Desmond Decker and we'll be back in a second to answer your questions from last time. We don't lose the battle, get your sheep. You've got your mind set on a dream. You can get it the As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, please visit akimbo.link and click 
the appropriate button. While you're there, you can download a file with all the transcripts for the first 250 episodes. Here we go. We're going to start with a little bit of a rant from Anupam. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam calling in from Berlin. I recently revisited your episode on placebos. And earlier, I used to think of placebos just as a sugar pill, only in the medical realm. And then I realized that it could be extended to the fancy performance of the sommelier as he or she pours a drink. But then I also realized that if you wrapped a chocolate in a wrapping that is purple, looks velvety and fancy, this chocolate is also likely to taste better and thereby certain aspects of branding also fall into the realm of placebos. And then I took it even further by thinking about how if you get married, uh, if you get, if you have a fancy wedding, is, doesn't that serve as a placebo for your commitment and your marriage? Similarly, when you go to a huge church to pray, isn't that a placebo for your religious faith? And when people get married in a big church, aren't they seeking to combine these placebos and reinforce themselves? So in, in a sense, I'm seeing placebos everywhere. And my question to you is, you know, are these extent, I mean, is it, is it fair to extend placebos to these realms or is it somehow restricted? What are the boundaries of calling something a placebo? Yes, we totally agree about this. There is no difference in my mind between a placebo that helps us heal from a disease and a placebo that gives us a better attitude, a placebo that helps us run a better race. It's all about the stories we tell ourselves that enable our brain to help us get better. So yes, marketing is a placebo. And when we use placebos to help people get to where they want to go, we're not manipulating people. We're being of service. That's why it's a great idea to do good marketing. Hi, Seth. This is Derek in Vancouver. Lately, I've been really into your concept of finding the smallest viable audience. Uh, I have a small business designing and building solid wood furniture. Um, but with something as subjective as a preference in furniture design or art, don't the people who like our work simply just like our work? How do designers, furniture makers, and artists go about niching down? Secondly, for those of us who already have a very small audience and want to really figure out who it's for, do we look at similarities in our current audience and decide, okay, this is who it's for, they all have this in common? Or do we set the guidelines ourselves and say, okay, my products are for blank, these people? Any insight on this would be appreciated. Thanks. Thank you for this question and for the beautiful furniture you make. Got a couple questions this week about the smallest viable audience, so here we go. Let's begin by saying niching down doesn't make any sense. You're niching up. Niching up because what you're saying is I want to be on the hook. I want to be very specific about who this is for. I want to create something that some people would miss if it were gone. And there's huge pressure to not do that, to fit in. Because once the customer shows up, the potential customer, you want to be able to give them what they want. But if you're busy making stuff for all the people who show up, you're giving nobody what they want 
because now they have choices and they can go down the street and get that same thing from someone who's doing the same thing. The alternative is to niche up, to be very specific about what you and only you can deliver in a specific way to help people get what they really need, dream about, and want. And to do that means leaving others behind, which leads to this next question. Hi, Seth. Ross here from Cape Town. Um, I have a question about the smallest viable audience and selling um, as it relates to scale. So I understand if you're selling a, a service or a, a widget or something um, where you can build up uh, a thousand true followers, I understand that concept. What if you're selling something at a far bigger scale? So if you're trying to sell a company, um, what, would you follow the same methods? Uh, very curious to hear your um, your thoughts on this. Thanks a lot. Bye. So it's easy to say that we need scale and that the way to get scale is to walk away from the smallest viable audience. But even if you're talking about getting elected with a majority of the votes, even if you're talking about building a huge enterprise like Nike or General Motors, you are still walking away from most people because most people don't buy any single product or service. Most people are apathetic. They are bystanders. There's only a few people left who care enough to spend the time or to spend the money. And so the best way to scale is to be specific. Now, the word viable might mean you need 2 million votes. It might mean you need 8 million customers to support your overhead, to support your operations, to support your investments. Okay, fine. But that's still a tiny number on a planet with 7 billion people on it. I don't care if you're selling hybridized seeds in Kenya or if you're trying to sell shoes in Belgium. The fact is, farmers have farms, people have feet, but they're not all your customers. The people who are your customers are the people who are choosing to pay attention and choosing to go where you seek to go. Hi, Seth. It's your longtime listener, Mark, here. My question is quite a personal one. My 23-year-old daughter is very worried about climate change. She's doing a PhD in science to improve batteries, so will hopefully be part of the solution. But like a lot of her generation, she sees it as a desperate and immediate problem needing more extreme solutions, which is partly the fault of her parents and her grandparents' generations. I tell her that we need to change the culture, which I think she sees as a bit of a cop-out. I worry that in her desperation, she's looking for more extreme, simple and radical solutions. So what should I tell her? Or maybe she is right. I would love to know your thoughts and advice. Thanks for all you do and all the inspiration you give. Thank you for this one. Your daughter is lucky to have you and vice versa. The thing is, we need culture change and we need culture change urgently. We don't have much of a window to shift from an extraction-based culture, a culture that has gotten fat and rich and happy by pumping carbon out of the ground at a price much lower than it should have been priced at. We have to shift from that, a carbon-based economy, to one that's not, to one that's regenerative, that's resilient, that starts to use the power of the market to turn the ratchet in the other direction. 
And we cannot do that and make every single person happy at the same time. So we can go to people in that smallest viable audience and tell them a true story, a story that resonates about how they can engage in inconvenient acts that cause things to get better in the long run. But to do that goes counter to the mindset of cheap, fast, convenient, and easy. So cultural change happens. It has happened many times in our lifetime that we have figured out how to pave the earth. We figured out how to get billions of people connected via a device in our hand that didn't even exist 10 years ago. It is possible to cause culture change, but culture change often is provoked by people who care a great deal. Does that mean it's okay to throw a can of soup at a priceless piece of art? I don't think so. Not because I wouldn't be willing to sacrifice three Van Gogh if it was going to solve the climate problem. I would. I think most of us would. It's because it's not going to help solve the climate problem. Getting in the newspaper is different than causing culture change. So yes, we need urgent action that will be caused by persistent and consistent behavior by people talking to other people. Culture change always is the result of consistent and persistent effort, not slacktivism, not what's the issue of the day, not what is everyone talking about today, but what happens when groups of people with coordinated action do not let up, do not let up, do not let up, and begin a network effect where the first rule, the second rule, and the third rule is we always talk about this. Because if we consistently and persistently go to people who are open to causing change to happen, it will spread. And ideas that spread win. People like us do things like this. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. There's a big problem that's changing everything about the world as we know it. Carbon and the impact of humans on the earth. We talk about it with words like climate change and global warming. But there's just two really important things that you need to know about it. First, this is an overwhelmingly big problem. So much so that it's likely that you feel as though your choices don't matter in the face of it. Second, that overwhelming feeling that I just mentioned it's intentional. It was put there by design. The industries that make the biggest environmental impact have a vested interest in you feeling overwhelmed and powerless. They've marketed, lobbied, and schemed to create that feeling in all of us. In short, we've been lied to. But here's the good news. There's a lot you can do to make a difference. And the other good news is that there's still time. The Carbon Almanac is a book and project about these problems and what we can do to solve them. It was created and run by volunteers on the premise that it's not too late, but none of us can fix this problem on our own. We need each other. There are many ways to get involved, but simply learning more is a great start. Here are three steps you can take. First, go to thecarbonalmanac.org and sign up for the Daily Difference emails. They give you a short thought and a practical action that you can take alongside thousands of others 
every day. Second, get the Carbon Almanac book. It's full of facts, articles, graphs, and art. It's beautiful and fun to engage with. It's all footnoted and fact-checked. And importantly, it's made by volunteers whose only agenda is to solve these systemic issues. You can find it wherever books are sold. Finally, since you're listening to a podcast, search for the Carbon Almanac wherever you're listening. You'll find the Carbon Almanac podcast network and a few shows featuring expert insight, discussion, inspiration, and ways to take action. There's even a show just for kids. Do what appeals to you. Just do something. There's still time to make a huge difference in the future of the planet, but we can't solve this on our own. Join us.